Welcome to the podcast of the Las Vegas Rotary Club. My name is Jim Cole, and I'm proud to be the 96th president of Las Vegas Rotary. Las Vegas Rotary's main focus is on youth, specifically youth literacy and life skill development. If you're in town, we invite you to join us at the Lowry's Prime Rib at noon on Thursdays. You can also find more information about our meetings on lasvegasrotary.com. If you're unable to join us, we live stream our meetings on Facebook at noon Pacific Time Thursdays. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Well, thank you, everybody, for being here. Um, it's a great fellowship. Thank you, President Jim, for nodding your head and giving a few of us here in the club the opportunity to put on a Memorial Day program. It's a day when we, actually Memorial Day was Monday the 27th, so always the last Monday in May. It's a day when we should solemnly and gratefully consider the sacrifice of so many men and women over the years since the revolution until the present. They died that we might be free and not just us, but people around the world. I'd like to thank Bob Barnard and Steve Linder and Walt Parrish and Greg McGuire for helping me put this program together today. This is a solemn occasion. We need to be very grateful. So I'm going to ask Steve to come up and explain the table, please. Thank you, Ted. Uh, it's my honor to uh, explain the significance of the small table that you see up front here. Uh, it's got a certain solemn significance, and I'd like to explain each of the items. It's a small table set for one person. Symbolizes the vulnerability of a lone prisoner against his captors. The white tablecloth symbolizes the purity of intention in responding to the call of duty. The empty chair reminds us that they are not here. The inverted wine glass symbolizes that they cannot toast with us today. The lemon slices remind us of their bitter fate. The grains of salt symbolize the tears of the family. The single red rose reminds us of loved ones who kept the faith and awaiting their return. The burning candle and the yellow ribbon symbolize everlasting hope of a reunion with the missing. Never forget those who died for our freedom Make sure their sacrifice is not in vain. There is a cost to freedom. The cost is measured in the blood of the U.S. military men and women who died in combat. Look at the slides.
1,471,000 deaths, military men and women serving in combat. Steve? First video, please, Kirk, after Steve's comments. This is a story about a man named Lois Dean. For almost all of his missions, he teamed up with pilot Robert Cosgrove, who was 24 years old from New Orleans, and radio man Digby Denzik, who was 20 years old from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lieutenant Cosgrove was a superb pilot and frequently returned in unflyable planes back to the carrier. Lois was the turret gunner who protected the plane from above. Each day, Reveille was sounded on the USS Essex at 0530. Breakfast was served at 0630. Throughout the night, the planes scheduled for the next day's missions were being prepared. On the flight deck, the Hellcat fighters were in front so they could take off first and protect the group and the carrier. In the rear were the Avenger and Helldiver bombers and torpedo planes. After breakfast, the pilots attended briefings in the ready room to get their final orders, weather conditions, and the plane that was assigned to them. That day, Lieutenant Cosgrove received tail number 93, a new plane just arrived from the States. Lieutenant Cosgrove's orders were to go after Japanese cruisers in Manila Bay. After briefing, Lieutenant Cosgrove joined his crew and they went topside to their plane. Lois Dean climbed into his gun turret for the final time. The group took off mid-morning and took a two-hour flight to get to Manila Bay to release their ordnance. There they encountered heavy anti-aircraft fire from a Japanese cruiser and Lois was killed from two anti-aircraft shells. The pilot Cosgrove was told by the radio man that Dean was hit and badly injured and then died. And then the gunner came up, the radio man came up through the small passageway to sit in the cabin behind him and stayed there until they landed two hours later. During the attack, plane and its controls were heavily damaged. Lieutenant Cosgrove had his hands full and used all his strength and skill to return another unflyable plane. It was a sad, long, two-hour flight back to the carrier.
And so Lois Dean's body was buried at sea in the place that he died, in, this, in, the, uh, in the turret in the back seat. Thank you, Steve. Powerful video. Can I have the lights uh, come up a little bit, please, Cesar? Thank you. What I'd like to do now is turn this program slightly to a more positive um, point. And I've asked three people in the audience today to come forward and share a military experience. My new friend and a new Rotarian in our club, Walt Parrish, then Greg McGuire, and then I will finish with a story of one of my combat missions. Walt, would you come up, please? You'll have to excuse me for a second. Uh, that last presentation just really hit home. My uncle was on the USS Wasp, which was it? My uncle was on the USS Wasp, which was an aircraft carrier in World War II that was sunk. My other uncle was in the Battle of the Bulge. I'd like to give you a little bit of a story that happened to me on the destroyer that I was on. Uh, I served on board the USS Ullman, DD-687, a destroyer of the Fletcher class, along with a crew of about 210 people. At that time, this was one of the fastest ships in the fleet. Not anymore. It would be taken over by an aircraft carrier with no problem at all. We had just finished the Formosa Patrol, a six-month tour of duty transversing the seas between mainland China and Formosa. Our charge was to monitor the South China Sea, thereby deterring the Chinese from bringing communism to Formosa. Our job done the atmosphere on the ship was lighthearted. The ship was headed for Hong Kong, and the crew was anticipating a well-deserved liberty. At approximately 11 p.m., or 2,300 hours, after most activities had ceased for the day, the crew was suddenly faced with a full-on emergency. Chills ran up my spine as I overheard the loudspeaker system. Man overboard, port side, followed by dead silence. At this point, the entire crew reported to their muster station for headcount. We remained there standing at attention while we felt ourselves roll side to side as the captain maneuvered the ship back and forth in search of our shipmate. The only noise we heard was the South China Sea rubbing up against the hull of the ship and the low purring of the engines. Imagine searching for someone in the pitch black dead of night in the middle of the sea with 10 foot swells all around. That night, we learned the importance of discipline 
we learn the importance of remaining patient. The, import the importance of remaining calm. And most importantly, we learn the importance of following the mandated routines for emergency situations. We knew what to do, and we performed the task at hand without a hitch. Our shipmate was only in the water for about four minutes before he was spotted alive and struggling in the rough seas. The rescue crew threw him a line and pulled him up the side of the ship onto the deck. As you might imagine, he was chilled to the bone and in shock, but most importantly, he was unharmed and alive. What I learned from this experience was to never give up and to use everything I have been taught to the best of my ability. This was the best experience of my life. We found him alive. I'd like to call Captain Greg McGuire up, please. Ted. So, uh, as Ted said, I was a, uh, in the U.S. Navy 26 years. I didn't know anything about the Navy when I joined. My mother made me do it. <laughs> From New Jersey all the way over to school in L.A. And then uh, at the moment, uh, you know, I didn't even know what, what the options were. And I was somehow got through it and uh, went off to Navy flight school. And then I flew for the Navy for 26 years. So at some point, though, they tell you to stop having fun and start working for a living. So I was assigned to a couple aircraft carriers, and this is me on the USS George Washington in Japan. And the story I'm going to tell you today is this is when everything is going great right there. It's a beautiful sunny day at sea. Uh, you can see Mount Fuji in the background. But not every day is like that. And as we've heard recently with the uh, USS John McCain, and the USS uh, Fitzgerald in the Seventh Fleet. There's days when things go horribly wrong, and we don't know when that's going to happen, but we have to be prepared, as Walt just talked about. So on this day, we were charged with uh, taking the USS George Washington, a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier from Norfolk, Virginia, to be stationed in Japan. We were going to relieve the USS Kitty Hawk, it was the first nuclear aircraft carrier to uh, be based in Japan, and as you might expect, the Japanese were uh, you know, very wary of that uh, happening in their own harbor. So we had sailed from Norfolk, we stopped in Rio de Janeiro, and then we went through the Strait of Magellan, uh, down through uh, just north of the Drake Pass Passage, and we had then pulled up into, um, into Valparaiso, Chile. We spent three or four days there, and then we had gotten underway, and we were doing some flight operations off the coast of the Galapagos. And uh, it was very early in the morning. We had a couple uh, frigates with us, a destroyer, a couple cruisers. And our job, it's a nuclear aircraft carrier, so we don't need fuel for the ship, but we do have to give fuel to the airplanes, and then we also are able to give fuel to our escorts. So in this morning, it was about six, 20 in the morning, 0620, and we were supposed to uh, bring along the USS Cromlin, and we were going to bring her up alongside us, and then we were going to get, pass some get fuel hoses over to her, and then we were going to give her gas. 
Uh, as she was making her approach, the captain and I were out in a starboard bridge wing. I was a navigator on the ship, so I was probably the number three guy on board. And my job was a safe uh, transit and execution of the day's activities. And we noticed smoke coming from just aft of the aft mast right here. And uh, that smoke, uh, we couldn't determine where it was. And if you've ever been on a boat, one of the worst things that could happen is a fire. And the, even worse than a fire is a fire that you don't know where it's coming from. And so uh, I'll just fast forward here a little bit. We um, went to general quarters at, uh, I think it was 7.20 in the morning, which means everybody is uh, assigned a, a station, a firefighting station. And we had a fire that was on the, just in the keel of the ship. And it, was, uh, it started in an uh, area where there was some hazmat, like fuel and oil stored that shouldn't have been there. The chief engineer had actually found it the day before and told the chief, who told the first class, who told the you know, petty officers to go move that, that uh, fuel. And they were in the process of doing so when a fire started. And above that uh, space, there was a, just like this, there was a vent, and that vent kind of went from all the way to the keel up to the flight deck. And so uh, what we had essentially was a chimney fire uh, that went all the way from the bottom to the top. The problems were we didn't know where it was coming from. And while we were getting ready to bring that sh other ship alongside and give them fuel, we had four kids down in the uh, aft JP-5 pump room. That JP-5 pump room is responsible for when given the signal to send the gas through the hoses over to the other ship. And um, we couldn't get those kids out. The fire raged from keel to flight deck uh, for about, probably about the width, the length of this room. You know, ship is about a, a thousand uh, feet long. And so this is probably, you know, 60, 80 feet or so. And so it was uh, in between those bulkheads and it was just after uh, the main machinery room too, where the nuclear power plant is. Um, the fire was coming up the stairwells. We were trying to send kids down to try and fight it, but the heat was so intense going up there that we couldn't do it. So the plan was to then go down forward into the uh, main machinery room and cut through the bulkheads to cut over to them. And in the process of doing that, um, we were able to finally fight the fire and, and get it out. So I tell you this story for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, the engineering of the ships and the machinery and the jets and the airplanes and the tanks and every piece and every dollar that we spend on that was proven to me that day that the systems that we had in place to fight a fire uh, in that situation, uh, while not perfect, the design of the ship, we could have lost an aircraft carrier you know, that day and uh, that would have been a disaster, obviously. And, uh, so the engineering that goes into that and the time it takes to build that and the time it takes to make those kind of uh, platforms is worth every single penny. Uh, secondly, um, the courage of the sailors, the officers, the enlisted, and in this case the air wing was on board also. It didn't matter if you were air wing, if you were a cook, if you were a, uh, a navigation person or if you were in engineering, everybody was fighting that fire. Everybody was working alongside each other. The air wing, matter of fact, they, what they did is they, they turned the whole uh, bow of the ship into a big uh, mess kitchen to keep everybody fed. We fought this fire for about 18 hours and it took uh, that long to get it out. It ended up costing over 70 million dollars of damage 
And at the end of it, we were able to still do 26 knots to get up to San Diego. So again, testament to the, the type of quality that we're putting into these ships. Um, but the real story is this. It's about having the authority, having the responsibility, and having the accountability. There's two gentlemen on board that day that fought harder than almost everybody else, and that was a captain and the XO of the ship. And they and their leadership are the ones responsible for saving that ship. The investigations, of course, came, and both of those gentlemen were relieved. And, and they also were responsible for putting the ship back together. So three months later, despite all of that, we as officers and leaders in the Navy and the Marine Corps, all the, all the services, we recognize that we have the ultimate accountability for making sure that what we do every single day is um, we're responsible for. Um, that's really, really important. It's really important when you get in your aircraft that you understand the power that you have for the, in that aircraft, understand that the targets that you pick, the uh, bombs that you drop, the places that you sail, that you ultimately have that accountability and that training is, is ultimately um, yours to, to be responsible for. When I joined the Navy, we had 220 million people in the world, or in the country, and now we have 330 million. When I joined the Navy, we had a force of about 2.3 million, and now we have a force of about 1.4 million. So the amount of people that are actually serving in the military today as a percentage of society has gone down significantly. As Ted showed you the numbers, I have my own numbers. I have my own numbers of friends that I've lost, many when they were uh, in, my, in my 20s. Uh, my roommate from college that couldn't stand the fact that all of his buddies were going off to flight school, he was actually from Croatia. He joined, an Air or joined the Navy, went to flight school out there with us, and he was lost in a training accident. Um, you might have heard recently, uh, I think it was uh, Major Brent Taylor, the mayor of North Ogden, Utah, uh, on his fourth tour to Afghanistan was killed. He had a family of, I don't know how many kids it was, six or seven. Um, that's just up the road in, in Utah, and that was recently. And uh, one I'll always remember, never forget, is uh, Lieutenant Commander Lyle Hanson, Lieutenant Daryl Nelson, and AW3 Kelly Williams. Uh, similar situation to what we see going through um, Iran right now when the tanker wars were starting. Uh, we were patrolling through the Straits of Hormuz between uh, uh, UAE and um, Iran, and they launched uh, probably about 0 0200 uh, as a patrol going through the Straits of Hormuz, and uh, were never seen again. They disappeared off a of radar, crashed into the ocean somehow. We're not sure why, and uh, they've been lost forever, but their memory, uh, never forgotten. So I'll leave with a, a, um, a statement from, uh, it's called a true course lesson from a life aloft. Um, and it goes like this. Earthbound, we have limitations as varied as our lives. As pilots, life is more straightforward. Our will is freer. Our lives, however different, are more real and more defined. No matter what we cherish in life, and we cherish it more, home, friends, and the smell of freshly tilled earth from a mile up, the heaty gulp of pristine, crisp air that clears both our lungs and our heads keeps us coming back day after day to continue to do what we've been trained to do. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. I haven't told this story to anybody. 
besides my wife and some very close friends in the Air Force. Uh, we don't tend to tell stories. We tend to just remember and then press on. But I thought it would be a little bit valuable to share the perspective, my perspective on my 384th and final combat mission as an Air Force fighter pilot. Thank you, Walt and Greg, for your inspiring stories. May 5th, 1972. I took off from my base in Thailand with Gary, my backseater, in our F4E Phantom. We were single ship, operating as fast forward air controllers. We were armed with white phosphorus smoke rockets and 650 rounds of 20 millimeter ammunition. Our mission was to do some armed reconnaissance in Laos and along the demilitarized zone between North and South Vietnam. Of particular interest to us were reports of SA-2 surface-to-air missile firings. In fact, we had encountered a SAM just several weeks prior to this mission. At that time, our radar homing and warning system warned us that we were being tracked, and then the launch light illuminated. We were targeted. I rolled inverted at 20,000 feet and spiraled toward the ground. The SAM missed us. An SA-2 at night is really bright and impossible to miss visually. May 5th. There wasn't much going on in Laos where we were searching, so we made a run along the DMZ. From fairly low altitude, Gary and I both exclaimed, Look! Vehicles! Are those missiles? A hard turn away, Gary captured the spot in the inertial navigation system, and we headed back to the spot to verify what we thought we had seen. Incredibly, there were several trucks, a van, a couple of transporter erector launchers called TELS, and other equipment in a clearing a few miles north of the uh, DMZ. Gary and I sorted out the, re the requisite information of the SAM site and I called our command and control center and reported what we found. And this is one of the smartest things we did that day. We asked for strikers and we loitered several miles south of the DMZ and a few minutes later, a flight of Navy, not Navy, but Marine Corps F-4s showed up. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> I marked the SAM site with two smoke rockets. The leader confirmed sighting the target and I cleared them in hot. Several passes and a couple of strings of Mark 82 bombs and CPUs later, the site started to explode. What is really exciting is seeing SAMs cook off on their launchers snake across the ground and explode as they break apart. We gave the Marines a great battle damage report and thanked them for their good work. After several more periods on station in Laos, we were, and a couple of mid-air refuelings, we were diverted to support a rescue off the coast of North Vietnam. A Navy fighter pilot had been shot down. We headed toward the pilot floating in his raft and I knew that the enemy would be heading to his position as well, but they would be in boats. I knew that I could get there first in my Phantom. I made some very low and high-speed passes over the North Vietnamese boats and strafed them with my cannon. All this to buy some time for the rescue forces to arrive and snatch the guy from the ocean. As we were making another low pass over the boats, all of a sudden the radar warning and homing system began to hiss and chatter. The launch light came on and Gary barked, Break right! As I rolled and pulled hard to the right, our Phantom dug into its 7G turn. 
a SAM passed directly over the canopy of our airplane and exploded behind us. Gary had seen the missile and saved our lives. As we exited the area, we heard on the radio that the Navy pilot was picked up by one of our rescue helicopters. We were emotionally and physically exhausted. After a long day in the weeds, we climbed to altitude and headed to our post-strike tanker and then home to our base in Thailand after a very successful 7.2-hour mission. Thank you. All right, I want to close this meeting in a very poignant manner. Um, I would like everybody to please stand up. Kirk is going to play a video. It's taps being played at the Arlington National Cemetery. If you are a veteran and wish to, upon my command of present arms, you are welcome to render a hand salute or you can just stand at attention. And at the end of the video, I will, I will uh, order, order arms and we will dismiss. Please play the video. Present Herms. Order Herms. Go forth and be of significance and never forget freedom is not free. We hope you enjoyed this podcast of our latest meeting. If you'd like to know more about our projects or are interested in membership in the club, please visit us at lasvegasrotary.com. Now go forth and be the inspiration.